If you're trying to figure out how to navigate the tricky tightrope of parenting while you have questions, doubts, and wonderings about your spiritual journey, our podcast is for you. It doesn't matter if your kids are smalls, middles, or bigs. We'll explore what and how we're deconstructing from churchianity, harmful belief systems, and diving deep into the ways we can work this out in parenthood. We're also going to work through ideas for reconstructing a space for our families to thrive under new systems of love and freedom. We can't wait to bring you some hope that you're not alone and that it's really okay, even good, to explore all the possibilities that may have felt closed off in the past. Our podcast is going to offer you grace and space to be exactly where you are and who you are. We're really glad you're here and we're excited for today's episode. Listen in. In preaching an ethic for sex that was built on patriarchy, we harm women. We heap undue responsibility and blame on women for men's sexual sin. We engage in victim blaming. We can perpetuate sexual dysfunction in unhappy marriages. And we often shame and silence both men and women. Camden Morganti. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Deconstructing Mamas podcast. We're talking with Camden today and we're really excited. Um, She's a licensed clinical psychologist and she specializes in purity culture and recovering from that and then faith reconstruction. So we're just over the moon about talking with you today. This is such a much needed topic. And so thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. I'm excited to dive into these topics with you. Purity culture, we're coming for you. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of discussion to happen around it. But quick, before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about what your day looks like, what your family looks like, and then outside of some of those like kind of responsibilities, what makes your heart come alive? Okay, sure. Yeah. So I'm a licensed psychologist, as you said. So my day looks like being in private practice as a therapist. Um, That's what I do three days a week. And then um, one day a week, I'm writing and speaking on podcasts and coaching and doing things like that from home. Um, So I love that day. That's today. The other day a week, I usually am home with my babies. So I like being able to have that balance as a working mom, having the balance of working and doing my like intellectual passions and things like that. And then also having time with my kids. They are four and my baby's almost one. Um, So yeah, so they're littles. And you said like, what does my family look like? So yeah, the kids and then my husband, um, we've been married almost seven years now. And then what makes my heart come alive? I mean, really just talking about this stuff with other people who have gone through it, like being able to talk about how we can heal from all the toxic cultural stuff from evangelicalism, but hold on to our faith in some way. That's really what makes me passionate. And that's really where I feel like I, what I can speak to and just the people I want to speak with. So that's what gets me going. I feel like we hear that a lot from people, you know, when we say like, what makes your heart come alive? And they'll say, well, well, this. And I mean, Esther and I can both, I think, relate to that. Like, I think that's true for me too. And you become so passionate about something and I think specifically healing, right? And you want to see people find like healing and wholeness. It's kind of really easy to, to just love to do it. Yeah. We feel that same way. Oh my goodness. This is great. And we just don't know. There's not a lot of experts on this very subject of purity culture, trauma recovery, I would say. So we're really thrilled to have you. And you alluded to your faith background, maybe a little bit. And could you just describe maybe your faith background in one word or a few words? And then maybe 
How has it changed over time? What word would you describe to where you are currently with it? It's hard to put it into one word, right? Like it's hard to just sum up your whole faith in one word. But I think if I had to choose one that describes my faith background, it would be rules. Following the rules, being the good girl. And particularly if you play by the rules, you get rewards. And that was really where purity culture affected me was this idea of if you follow the rules of purity culture, you get a fairy tale and you get, yeah, you get your false promises is what I call them. So that was my faith background growing up in conservative evangelicalism. And I went to a Christian college. I had a great experience overall, but it just really furthered that you stay in a box and it's very black and white and rule based. And then after college is when I went through a faith deconstruction, going into graduate school to get my doctorate in psychology and becoming a therapist for the first time really confronted me with stories of suffering and pain mm. and trying to reconcile how God is good, but yet all this suffering exists. That's really what my first deconstruction was about. That was still over 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. And then it's just kind of been evolving over time. So the word or the phrase I would describe my faith with now would be nuance, or I use this term middle path, mm. which is a term in the therapy that I practice. Walking the middle path is one of the skills that I teach in the therapy I practice, but it applies to my faith too, of walking this middle path in my faith. I identify between conservative and progressive Christianity and between like legalism and license and just kind of what that looks like for me and how I find congruence and peace in my faith. I don't fit into really either box fully. And and sometimes that leaves me in a lot of gray areas, but it's better than forcing myself to fit. I love that idea of the middle path. It sounds a little bit to me like Richard Rohr's idea of the both and, and not being so binary with everything. It's all this, or it's all that. You're a chewed up piece of gum, or you're you know a beautiful bride that can wear white. To just mm -hmm. take it to the purity culture thing. It's like, you're all this or you're all that. So I love that idea of the middle path. Right, exactly. The therapy that I mostly use is called dialectical behavior therapy. Mm -hmm. And dialectical means being able to hold these two seemingly opposing truths and tension and being able to find the integration or the middle path between the two. So both and, I use that language a lot instead of either or. And yeah, and not fitting into dichotomies and all or nothing. But yeah, exploring that middle path and all the possibilities there. As a licensed clinical psychologist, is that the right term? Yes. You specialize, as we were saying, in purity culture, recovery and faith reconstruction. What are some of the most common themes that you see in your practice from clients who are actually struggling in these areas, like so many of us are? I see a lot of effects from purity mm. culture and a lot of times people don't realize that's where it comes from. But the three main areas that purity culture affects are your faith, relationships, and sexuality. So looking within those three main areas, I see a lot of shame. Mm. I call shame the universal experience of purity culture because it really affects everyone that grew up in purity culture, whether you're married or single, male or female you were a virgin when you got married or not, like it affects all of us. So shame is something that I see a lot of, a lot of self-doubt, 
not being able to trust ourselves. I think that comes from legalistic faith too, of always having to look to our pastors or to spiritual authorities for the answer, rather than being able to look inside ourselves or really tune in and tap into what our emotions are telling us, not even knowing what their emotions are. A lot of internal conflict, feeling lost and people just feeling like they're questioning their faith and don't have a solid foundation. Mm -hmm. And then with purity culture specifically, I see sexual problems in the clients I treat and anxiety about sex, discomfort with their sexuality, fears about sexuality, lack of sex eds. Yeah, it can affect a lot of areas of someone's sexual functioning too. Do you see sometimes just a general like disconnect from body, like disconnect from just like what you need, even like outside of like these sexual wants and desires, but like just what does your body need at certain times, right? And how can you connect to your body in certain ways? Um, I feel like something that I have been like realizing more just in having conversations with other people who have like been through this as I have is that like a lot of people will say to me, yeah, like I don't know how to feed myself, which is like something that I struggle with, right? Like I don't know how to like satiate myself. I don't know how to identify what my needs are. And I don't know if I would have maybe early on have connected that to purity culture, but the more that I've kind of learned, kind of walked this journey, I've realized like, no, that they actually are so connected for me. Is that something that you would say that you see a lot of? Yeah, a total disconnect between the mind, the body and the heart is what I see. Like, because and I I don't think it's just purity culture, it's evangelical and legalistic Christianity in general. But it's, it's also our broader culture too, of um, making women distrust their bodies or your body is your enemy and you kind of have to subdue it and, and make it fit into the cultural scripts. But definitely the emphasis in some Christian traditions of like distrusting the heart, that your heart is wicked and deceitful and can't be trusted. So that creates a lot of disconnect between someone's emotions um, and their mind. There was a lot more emphasis on the mind and right beliefs thinking the right things, doing the right things, rather than paying attention to your emotions and paying attention to your body. So some of what I, the work I do in therapy is just helping people even be able to identify emotions and be able to identify sensations in their bodies, which gives them clues on their emotions, right? Like if you're feeling certain sensations in your stomach or your chest, or you're feeling your heart rate increasing, like that gives us clues on our emotions, which then gives us clues on what to do and what we need. And asking for help, getting resources, things like that. Yeah. So there's a huge disconnect that people come in with. Yeah. I was even thinking like, what gives me pleasure when it comes to the whole sexual thing? It's, I was never allowed to have wants. It was all about denying self, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Joy was part of it, but it was only like joy in the Lord or joy because we saw people getting saved or joy, whatever it was, it was limited joy and not just unadulterated joy, I would say. And so I think like, wow, the pleasure that you get or can get and hope to get out of the sexual experience is then also a huge disconnect, perhaps. Yes. And not only that, but the pleasure when it comes to sex itself feels sinful still. Mm -hmm. People can't really make that switch from prior to marriage. It was sinful and off limits. But after marriage... Now it's supposed to be pleasurable and holy and sacred. And I'm supposed to constantly be available to my husband and or want sex all the time. Like, so a lot of confusing messages. And again, when there's been such a disconnect from the body, we know that it's going to affect sexual pleasure too. You can't really experience the fullness of sexual connectedness 
and pleasure if you're not connected to your body. I used to hear a lot too, like, it's your biblical duty, like to have sex with your husband. And I mean, you don't know me very well, but I would just be like, what? You're right. It's not my duty. But even just that mindset of like, okay, it, it, it always is about someone else or something else, or it's never really about you or it shouldn't really be about you. Right. And that is like a really hard path to go on when your entire life has been like, it's always about someone else or something else. And it's never really about me. Yeah. And in my purity culture recovery coaching that I do, a lot of it is trying to help people shift their mindset from sex as give and take. Like I have to give him sex or he's taking pleasure to a mutual sharing. Like I get to choose to share my body or share this pleasure, share this experience with my partner instead of I'm just giving it to him. So like you said, a total disconnect from pleasure too. And then it becomes this duty and this obligation something you have to give, which ruins women's sex drive and potential for pleasure too. Yeah. I was just thinking about when you said the mutual sharing, it's a conversation. It's not just one person doing all the talking and one person doing all the listening. The best and healthiest conversations are where I'm trying to get to know you and you're trying to get to know me and we're in a mutual place. So, wow, I, I never thought about it like that. It's almost like a bodily conversation between two people mm-hmm. where we're really trying to get to know each other and our wants and our needs and our dreams and our hopes and, and the pleasure that can come from it. My mind is blown. Thank you for this therapy session so far. Yeah. I like conversation and dialogue, meaning like Gaia is two people. Like there's two people in this conversation whose needs and wants matters. And it's reciprocal rather than transactional, you know, a transactional relationship is like, I go to Uh, a service provider, I pay them money. That's my part of the transaction. They give me the service. That's their part. And that's the end of it versus this mutual sharing and mutual dialogue that's happening in real good intimacy. We'll be right back to the rest of today's podcast episode. But first, we want to give a huge shout out to some of our amazing and faithful Patreon supporters, Carol Tellman, Kathy Landmorell, and Katie Bartolomo. For just $3 a month, you can help us keep the lights on and at the same time be a part of our safe and private Facebook community where you won't feel so alone in this evolving faith and parenting journey. We really hope to see you there. Now, back to the episode. So can we just go back to your quote from the beginning? I'd love to read that again and we'll go from there. In preaching an ethic for sex that was built on patriarchy, we harm women. We heap undue responsibility and blame on women for men's sexual sin. We engage in victim blaming. We can perpetuate sexual dysfunction and unhappy marriages. And we often shame and silence both men and women. We want to talk about that. Can you unpack that quote for us just a little bit? The ways in which we harm women and men Mm -hmm. and sexual relationships in this way. Unpack like the sexual sin a bit for those who are triggered maybe by the phrasing of sin. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots to unpack in that, in that one. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, patriarchy's in there. There's a lot. In that. Yeah, there is a lot. Yeah. I say that purity culture is based on patriarchy and so are the other toxic cultures like modesty culture, rape culture. They all have these roots in patriarchy. They all have these roots on maintaining men's dominance, power and control and subduing and controlling women's. So that's what that part means or what I mean by that. But really what I mean by it harms men and women is that 
purity culture makes women responsible and the gatekeepers of men's sexuality. Hmm. So before marriage, women are the ones that are responsible for setting boundaries, putting the brakes on um, the sexual relationship. And we've been taught that from books, purity culture books of like the 90s and 2000s that said most men don't have the ability to stop a sexual encounter because, you know, it's every man's battle. They just want sex all the time. So you've got to be the one to do that, women. And so when we put that responsibility on women, it causes them to really be outside of their bodies again, because they're constantly having to tune into his body. Is he getting too aroused? Do we need to stop? Is this okay? Is this not okay? And then after marriage, we make them the gatekeepers of men's sexuality by what you were saying, Liz, about it's your duty. You constantly have to be available to your husband. You need to have sex every 72 hours. And it creates a sense of obligation, which like we said, leads to low sex drive and lack of sexual pleasure and just this obligation sex and and even blaming women for their own experiences of sexual assault. So you asked about the language of sexual sin. I think that language may still resonate with some people and may not with others. But by that, I think I meant, you know, anything that's outside of the person's belief systems and values and harms others. So for some that could be porn use, um, like blaming women, you didn't give your husband enough uh, sex, and that's why he's addicted to porn, blaming her for his affairs, or um, even for instances of sexual assault or coercion, you know, that was your fault because of what you wore or where you were, or you should have been with him in the first place, or it's your fault in some way. Yeah. So those are all the ways women responsible or put blame on women. I like that you unpacked that sexual sin thing a little bit, because when I think of sexual sin, I immediately think like you went too far, right? Like you went too far according to the church or according to your pastor, or according to youth pastor. Like I remember as like a younger person, being like, oh my gosh, like, where's the stopping point? Can someone give me like a specific part of the body where like it needs to stop? Because too far the other way is sexual sin. So I think I even still, even as I've deconstructed so much, that's where my mind goes when I think sexual sin. So it was really helpful to hear you unpack that in a very different way. This is something that is harming somebody else. It's not like you said earlier on, it's not a rule, right? That we have to follow because someone else told us. We're figuring out for ourselves what is safe for us, what makes sense for us, where is the line for us, right? Like, what does that look like? And then also being able to be aware of that in other people. Am I saying that right? Yeah, I think as a therapist, it's not my job to impose my values or my beliefs or ethics on my clients. And so I try to maintain that balance in my writing and my coaching work too. So for some they might think of sexual sin as anything that's outside of what they believe the Bible says. And so I would use that language if that's what they're comfortable with. But for others, I would use the language of that's incongruent with your values. Anything that's outside or incongruent with your values is going to cause you problems. It's going to cause guilt and it's going to harm others and potentially harm yourself in the long run. So, And that speaks to trusting yourself. Each person is going to come at, at this with a whole set of stuff, their entire background, their current situation. And I really, really like that. It's like, whatever is going to cause you harm. And when you go against your own values and your own truth, whatever that is, it is going to cause you harm. That's disintegrated, right? Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So I love that. Thank you for unpacking that. Because yeah, the word sin just because it's been used against people so much Mm -hmm. to control everybody. I read a book and it was by Brian Zond called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. 
And he unpacks the word sin and says, it's whenever we go against the grain of love. And that helps me so much. Love for ourselves, love for others. Whenever that just doesn't feel right, when we're against love, that's when really sin, quote unquote, happens. And that's the definition I've tried to get my neurons to fire on this quite a bit more and replace the pathway that was so loud for me growing up. So thank you for that. Wow. I'm so curious too about this idea of grace for yourself, right? There's things in my past that I have done that looking back, I'm like, eh, wouldn't do that again, right? Or like that wasn't like the best thing for me to do in that moment. But the idea that I had grown up with were like, if you do this, it's over for you. Like it is over for you. You can't come back from it. You're, you know, all of these things. And so coming to a place where you can, I think, I mean, maybe when you were talking about sort of like the both and you can say like, wasn't made my best decision, probably wouldn't do that again with like the information that I have now about myself and others and whatever, but it wasn't the end of the world. Mm -hmm. It actually ended up being okay, right? I'm more harmed in some ways by purity culture than I was by some of my actions that weren't completely in line with who I am as a person and what I really wanted. But that has been the newest piece I think in, in my own journey is just being able to say like, all right, but it's all right right? It happened, like not holding on to that shame. And so I don't know exactly what my question is with that. But I guess really what I'm wondering is what you talk about with your clients or in sessions that kind of line up with that with people who are feeling like extreme shame for past choices, or who are really stuck in that mindset of I'm a chewed up piece of gum or you know, whatever, whatever they heard in youth group. It's normal to have regrets. It's normal to have some shame and guilt when our actions aren't aligned with our values. And part of the process of dealing with those is giving yourself grace and and looking at yourself with compassion and forgiveness, which I know that can be a loaded term too, but, um, but self-forgiveness and recognizing, like you said, you did the best with what you had at the time, or you made mistakes and you can forgive yourself and learn from them. So I do have clients who made mistakes, like had an affair when they were married and that that has been hugely damaging to them and to their families and their spouses. And they carry a lot of, of guilt and regret. And it's not going to be helpful to say, eh, it doesn't matter. No biggie. Like just move on. There's real work to be done in lamenting that and in grieving the pain that that caused you and others and in proactively facing your guilt, but then also being able to eventually let it go and forgive yourself and experience God's grace. If, if that still resonates with them or giving yourself grace too, and experiencing it from others in your community. Yeah. Because we can't just wallow and stay stuck in the shame. I think there's like those two extremes of you either stay stuck in it and wallow in it and punish yourself forever for it. Or you're like, Oh, it doesn't matter. Whatever. I'm just going to get over it. Like neither of those are healthy. How do you, I guess, separate, I mean, the shame, right, from what you're talking about, which is just like this healthy awareness of the way in which your reactions have harmed yourself and others. Like, I feel like sometimes they feel like the same thing, but they're really not, right? Shame is sort of this other spiral that you go to. How do you separate those two or how do you help people separate those two? Yeah, this is one of my favorite questions because Brene (laughs) Brown has made all of us so much more aware of shame. And starting to learn what's the difference between guilt and shame. And that's kind of what you're getting at, Liz, is that in the psychological literature, guilt is actually a healthy emotion because it can bring awareness to when our actions are out of alignment with our values. And the antidote to that is to face your actions, to learn from them, to commit to not doing it in the future, to possibly ask 
others, apologize to others, apologize to yourself, things like that. But shame is an unhelpful emotion and it has a social component to it, a component of social disapproval and rejection. So it's not just, gosh, I did something I really regret that was really harmful to others and myself. It's this added component of, and others are going to reject me or judge me, or I'm no longer worthy. I'm a bad person. And so that's where it becomes not helpful. And that's where people can get really stuck and wallow in the shame. So the antidote to that is to deal with the guilt in a healthy way, and then to find safe people that can help you give you empathy. You know, Brene Brown says empathy is the antidote to shame empathy and connection. So experiencing Mm -hmm. that empathy and connection with me as their therapist is often very healing for people, but then also experiencing it from others in their um, life, their friends, their family, and even their faith community, if if it's safe and can offer that. Good caveat. Mm -hmm. I just think about my own journey. And we talk about this a lot with my parenting that I had older kids and I didn't know better. And I have a lot of regret, massive amounts of regret. And I said to my daughter, even yesterday on a walk, oh, I like wish I could go back and parent you guys again. I just don't even know what you guys were like. Like I missed out on so many things. And yet all I can really do there is grieve it. It is a lot of sadness that does arise in me, but I find that my grieving of that propels me forward to connection. If I were wallowing in shame about it, and I struggle. I mean, you go back and forth, right? It's not like, oh, I... I have no shame. I have all shame. But when I notice that I'm going to a place of shame is when I feel like I'm disconnecting. It creates isolation and disconnection instead of connection. So I feel like guilt and regret and grief can propel us to connect. Like yesterday, I was like, I'm sorry. It makes me so sad. And then she asked a great question. What would it have been like for you? What do you think you would have done? And we walked through it and everything and brings a lot of healing. I really like that idea. I think I felt so long that guilt was wrong. And there's a difference between I did wrong things and I am a wrong person. I am bad and I did something bad, right? And that's the the difference because guilt provides a place for us to take responsibility (laughs) in what we can be responsible for and not take responsibility. I didn't know. There's nothing I could do differently based on what I knew. So there's part of me that's responsible and another part of me that isn't. Yeah, what you're describing there sounds like the middle path. Instead of saying I was a bad mom, no, I'm not all bad, but I made mistakes and I really regret the ways that I raised my kids in this particular way or the messages I gave my kids. And I love it, Esther, when I get messages from women who have older children who say, gosh, I wish I had known this 20, 30 years ago. And I wish I had raised my kids differently. And I'll say, it's never too late. And your humility and your ability to go back to them and apologize and say, gosh, if I had known now what I knew then, I would have done things differently. But I was doing the best that I could. I think that makes a huge uh, impact on your kids of modeling that humility and that it's never too late. And it's also what you said, like it propels you forward to share with others, you know, to speak up and say, like, don't make the mistakes that I made um, as a mother. And that is the antidote to shame. Mm. You were saying like, when you're stuck in the shame, you kind of want to isolate, you want to hide because of that fear of social rejection and judgment. But to do the opposite of that, to come out and share your story and to say, here's what I've learned from that, that is the antidote to the shame there. That's going to diminish the shame and turn it into something really productive for you and others. 
There's a lot of crying that goes on, <laughs> which is healthy, yeah. which is healthy. So can you offer some practical advice or steps to help us all regain our sexual wholeness if we've been damaged by purity culture? Yeah, I think it all goes back to that getting your mind and heart and body aligned. So doing a lot of awareness of the body. Um, I use mindfulness meditation a lot in my practice. So developing a mindfulness practice, body scans, becoming more aware of what's going on in your body is good. And then I have a lot of my clients do a journaling exercise where I have them write down their toxic beliefs and where they think those came from. We look at, so what, what are the beliefs? Where did they come from? And why do you think that person or that source told you that or taught you that? And the reason we do that is so they can start to see this wasn't just me. You know, I'm not crazy or a bad person. This came from outside sources, but also to start to maybe develop a little empathy sometimes. Like if it was their parents, my parents were just trying to protect me. They were just doing what they were taught, what James Dobson told them to, to, you know, to say, or, you know, that maybe some pastors or some even these purity culture book authors, some of them may have had good intentions, but they just really went about it in a very harmful way. So that can help with the grieving process and help to have some empathy for the source of the beliefs. But then look at what is the evidence for and against this belief? Like, is there any truth to this? Is there any evidence that you need to have sex every 72 hours with your, your spouse? You know, what's the evidence for and against it? And so I guide people to like start searching for safe and trusted sources for healthier beliefs and to start replacing those toxic beliefs with the truth. And then when they've done that work, you've got to live out that new belief in your body. It's not enough to just believe it in your head. Um, We have to take it outside of ourselves um, to really start to internalize the belief. So test it out in everyday life. An example of this would be Like if a woman has believed, like it's never okay to say no to my husband. If he asks for sex, like I always need to say yes. And she knows like, okay, I know that's not true. Like the healthier belief is that I'm allowed to say no. I'm allowed to have agency and set boundaries. Then she's got to be able to test it out and experience safe um, results from testing that out. I would only recommend this, obviously, if the marriage were a safe place. And a lot of the couples that I work with, really are like the marriages are safe places and the husbands really do have good intentions and want to be loving. They've been harmed by this too. You know, they've been a victim of this culture too. And sometimes they just don't know a better way. So if if the wife is able to test out that belief and say no, and the husband is able to respond in a loving and caring way, that can help to start to make the belief real. That's when it's no longer just true in my mind, but it's also true in my body. Mm. Hmm. I really like that piece of not just true in my mind, but also true in my body, because so many of us know, right, you can change the way that you think about things, but your body is still holding all of this trauma and all of this stuff. And that can almost be the trickier part of it. I think usually it is, right? Yeah. And just by saying the words, no, your body is doing something. Just like, no, you know, it's not really good for me now. I don't really want to do this today. We can revisit this your voice is part of your body. You are embodying yourself. That's cool. Love that. Yeah. You're exercising your voice. Another example I would give, since this is about us as mamas, a lot of us, we want to teach our kids about consent, right? Like that was something we were never taught about and just a word we didn't even hear. And so we can teach our kids consent with words, but then actually modeling it with actions too. So like we've had this talk with my daughter who's four, 
about, you know, you're the boss of your body. And if you're not comfortable with something, you say, stop, who's safe to touch your private parts and, you know, the circumstances with that and stuff. But then one time my parents were over and my dad was like tickling her and he kept going even after she said, no, you stop, I'm done. And I was like, dad, we stop when she says stop in our house Mm -hmm. and he stopped. And that was really powerful for me and for her. I I hope, you know, just that I was not allowed to do that when I was growing up. It was not respected when I said stop, the tickling continued and um, there was not anything, you know, abuse or anything worse than that. Um, So I know some people have much harder stories, but still like just this idea that I couldn't say no and it be respected. Mm -hmm. So I hope that was a good way of modeling that for her and her seeing that in action and not just words. Yeah, breaking that cycle. I love that. And the whole children having agency over their body is such a beautiful switch in the cultural mindset. I'm like thrilled. I ask permission to hug kids now. I just don't go up to them. And a friend of mine has a little daughter that I pick up from daycare sometimes. And it took a long time as I was beginning to pick her up. And the other day she ran to me and threw her arms around me. But when it comes to affection or those kind of things, I'm like, do you want to hold hands? She slept over once. I was like, where do you want to sleep? Just asking them permission gives them the right to be like, don't want to do that. I don't want to hug grandma. I don't want to. What does that speak into us too? We're allowed to say, we're like, as Liz and I always say, reparenting ourselves. Yeah. I'm allowed to say like, I don't want to do that. Stop tickling me. Don't touch me there. I mean, I love how you're talking about the tickling example. So often these things that we want to teach our kids about sexuality, like we can teach in these really tiny moments, right? Like you don't have to sit down and say like, okay, now we're going to talk about sexuality. And like, it's just literally how you're parenting, right? My five-year-old says to me all the time with stuff like my body, my choice. It's cool to me, even though a lot of times I'm like, okay, but Lila, honey, like it's literally 30 degrees out. So like, you just need something under your skirt. But I love that she's able to say that, you know, or she will say sometimes to people, no, I don't want to do that. It's powerful when you do, when you see your kids doing things that, you know, you wouldn't have felt safe to do as a young kid. It can be really powerful. But I just liked that you gave that example of something that really didn't have a lot to do with sexuality, just had a lot to do with consent and her control of her own self and her Mm -hmm. words being heard and just those little everyday ways that we can support our kids in that and show them this is important and you get to have a voice here. Yeah. Reparenting is a huge part of this. It puts a lot of work on us as the parents, but like, even I found it really triggering when my daughter would say no to me, not about her body, but just like, I tell her to do something. And she says, no, because I was not allowed to say no to my parents. Mm -hmm. You know, you obey, you obey your parents. And so I would find myself saying like, you know, you need to obey. And then I was like, you know, even that word is triggering to me. So I don't want to use it with her. So my husband and I were kind of brainstorming, like what word can we use instead? So we've landed on cooperate, you know, and talking about like how when we leave the house, we need to cooperate by putting on our shoes, like just things like that, because she's still little. And then we found that we can also talk about and give her examples of look, mommy and daddy are cooperating. Daddy cooked dinner while I picked you up from school or whatever, like, because we're also trying to model like egalitarian mutual partnership with her. So anyway, so that might have been a little off topic, but just no, this I love that. This is on topic. I think reparenting ourselves is huge. And the things that trigger us, like you said, they just talk back to me. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, they said no. When we're triggered inside, we need to listen to what's behind all of that and then say, wow, maybe that wasn't really right. 
Mm-hmm. Maybe they are allowed to say no. I know the whole no thing, which I think is powerful. It is a natural, normal process of differentiating that you are not your parent mm-hmm. and you are an ownership, the words no and mine, which are two of the most sinful things that kids could do, quote unquote, in the tradition I grew up in. They couldn't say mine to your friends and you couldn't say no to your parents. And I'm like, they're just differentiating themselves. Mm-hmm. They're just saying, I'm a person. And so now I'm all like celebrating. <laughs> Yay, you said no. You said <laughs> it just means they're actually healthy children whose yeah. brains are developing. So normal development. And, and not yeah, and taking the morality out of it. It just amazes me what we moralized. Yeah. And when I found myself triggered by that at first, I realized it was because I wasn't allowed to say no growing up. And you know, automatically I'm like, that's disrespectful, you know, because that was a word that was used a lot. And then I thought, and I was, I was like, wait a second, as a therapist, I spend a lot of time helping people learn how to say no as adults, you know, like set boundaries. You know, you can say no to that request. Your needs matter too. Like use your voice. Like those are things I spend a lot of my work doing. So why wouldn't I want her to start doing that now? And like you said, it's so developmentally normal. They're developing autonomy at that age. Yeah. So being curious about our triggers, I guess, but again, not shaming myself, not like, well, I'm, it's terrible that I told her she couldn't say no. And I told her she needed to obey, but it was like, that was a trigger for me. And that language is what I'm used to, but I want to do things differently. So let me be curious about this. Let me be thoughtful about this. Let's find another way that she can learn how to cooperate (laughs) when I need her to. Yeah. So if you could preach a message like on your website, or you put a video out there and 50,000 people were watching. Maybe 50,000 people will listen to this. Who knows? Maybe. <laughs> people that are going into a more nuanced, and I think you called it open-hearted. What did? What was your word that you, oh, new, yeah, nuanced. You said nuanced faith. What would be the overarching message you would want to send to them? Deconstruction doesn't have to mean deconverting. And I know for some people it does, but that has not been my path. The people that I really feel like I speak to and uniquely like want to reach are people who want to hold on to their faith, but walk away from the toxic parts of their faith. So I always say like, I went through deconstruction and ended up with a more open, more nuanced, but ultimately deeper and richer faith that doesn't look so black and white. It doesn't fit into boxes. Like I said, it's not simplistic, but we can walk that middle path of rejecting the toxic beliefs, but holding on to our identity as Christians and our love of Jesus We don't have to choose one or the other, and you don't have to stay in these clearly defined boxes. You can choose pieces of maybe your faith tradition that you grew up in that you did like, and then leave what doesn't fit you and find something else instead. So I think that's my big message and the people that I want to reach. What about your kids? Like, what would be the message you want to share with your kids when they're a little older, or even with your four-year-old, but what would be the message you want them to take away about God, faith, themselves? That's a hard question. (laughs) It is hard. I feel like a lot of what I might want to say is things that you might hear in the church or in traditional Christianity that I like, I do want them to know that God loves them and that God has a plan and purpose for their life. Like those things are still very meaningful to me, but where I would change it is that like we talk about grace a lot in the church and 
that grace is a gift. And my daughter's name is Grace for that reason. Mm -hmm. We named her that because she's a gift to us. But that grace doesn't mean that you have to follow the rules to earn or deserve it. Um, You don't have to abide by those rules to or be a good girl to earn God's love or to deserve a relationship with him. So I think that's where I would change it is that you're you're worthy and deserving of that love and that relationship with God just as you are. Mm. Powerful. powerful. Yeah, that's really, really powerful. You know, deconstruction can look so many different ways to people, right? Some people move on to something else, but there's so many, I think, of us that are like, we like this, right? Like there's so much like beauty and and meaning in our Christianity, but what do we do with all of that other stuff? I think that's just a really, really powerful message. Like you are loved and you don't need to earn it. Well, Camden, thanks so much for coming on. This has just been great. I know I probably need your coaching and probably so many of us need your coaching. So can you just tell people where they can find you to perhaps dive a little deeper with you if they're really struggling in this area? Sure. Yeah. My website is drcamden.com and I offer coaching for women and couples anywhere in the U.S. and other countries. The coaching allows me to work with people everywhere and work specifically on issues of purity, culture, and faith. So drcamden.com and I'm Dr. Camden on all the social medias. So that's where people can find me. And I have a free quiz on my website called Which Purity Culture Myth Affects You? I've named five myths of purity culture and you can answer some questions and see which one of those myths am I still kind of it's still hanging around it's still affecting me and that can be really eye-opening for people to see what work is still there to do thank you wow this has been really good really good thank you thank you Esther thanks Liz for having me yeah well that's it for this episode on the deconstructing mamas podcast We love that you tuned in and hope this gave you a little bit of grace and space for your soul to breathe. Don't forget to catch up on any of our episodes that you missed. And remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Deconstructing Mamas. That's where you'll find all the information that you need about the podcast, as well as on both of our websites, estherjoygets.com and elizabethpetters.com, as well as our brand new website, deconstructingmamas.com. If you would like to support the podcast, please leave us a review where you listen and especially tell others about the show. Thanks for listening and come back again for our next episode. We can't wait to be on the other side of your headphones.